Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 173 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing queer themes in horror and talking about Queers Destroy Horror, a special crowdfunded issue of Nightmare Magazine. And this will sort of be a continuation of our panel on Queers Destroy Science Fiction from episode 133, so you might want to listen to that one too, if you haven't already. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Wendy N. Wagner. She's the managing slash associate editor for Lightspeed and Nightmare Magazines, and also served as guest editor for Queers Destroy Horror. She's also the author of Skinwalkers, a Pathfinder Tales adventure novel, as well as more than 30 short stories that have appeared in venues like Cthulhu Photogen, Farago's Wainscot, and Beneath Ceaseless Skies. So, Wendy, welcome to the show. Hi, David. <laughs> then next up, we've got Craig Lawrence Gidney, who served as an assistant editor for Queers Destroy Horror. He writes both contemporary young adult and genre fiction, and his first collection, See, Swallow Me, and Other Stories, was a finalist for the 2009 Lambda Literary Award. Bereft, a YA novel, appeared in 2013 from Tiny Satchel Press, and his second collection, Skin Deep Magic, is out now from Rebel Satori Press. So, Craig, welcome to the show. Hello. And finally, we've got Alyssa Wong, whose short story, Hungry Daughters of Starving Mothers, appears in Queers Destroy Horror. She's a Nebula, World Fantasy, and Shirley Jackson Award-nominated author and 2013 graduate of the Clarion Writers Workshop. Her work appears in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, Strange Horizons, Tor.com, Uncanny Magazine, and Black Static, and she's currently a first-year MFA student at North Carolina State University. So, Alyssa, welcome to the show. Thank you. Okay, and so the first thing I want to talk about is just whether you guys saw many queer characters in horror growing up, and if so, what you thought of those characters. So, Craig, let's start with you. Well, what was your experience with that? Uh, I'd say the first queer character that really got to me was in Shirley Jackson's The Haunting, where she had that chic bisexual character. I forget what her name was, but she wasn't... Theo, that's hmm. it, Theodora, and she was friends with um, with Eleanor, who I always thought was, if not te- classically queer, she was on some other spectrum at least, because she really wasn't, she didn't have romantic interests, it seemed like. Well, I mean, Craig, I've also heard you talk about Tanith Lee and the impact she had on you. Could you talk about that? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, I. When I was, uh, I remember when I first picked up a book of Tanith Lee's, it was Delirium's Mistress, and I remember it very clearly. I was riding on a bus going to a job in a really blighted area of uh, D.C., and the first thing that came across was, of course, her gorgeous prose, and the first section was basically this queer love story, and I was like, oh my God, you can write that? So that's what that meant to me. Right, because I I think you said you were still in the closet at that point. Yes, I was. I was. And so it was very uh, helpful and for me to come out of the closet with to her. And I actually wrote her a letter, you know, thanking her for that. Oh, did she write back? Uh, not until many years later when we actually met in, in person. I think the letter got lost. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, how about Wendy? Uh, what was your experience with this? You know, I can't remember like seeing anyone queer in a horror movie or in a horror novel that I read growing up at all. I, I mean, I don't really remember reading any queer characters until like I was probably late middle school age and, you know, picking up like Mercedes Lackey novels. Just definitely not horror, although the outfits could be construed horrifically <laughs> now. <laughs> I, so, so definitely, like, uh, horror was, my experience of it as a younger person was a very straight realm. Huh. So, so you guys didn't see any negative portrayals of queer characters at all because there just weren't many queer characters, or, or did you? I did. Uh, back in the 70s, there was a movie sort of a black exploitation movie called uh, Blackula. And the first victims were uh, an interracial gay couple, and they 
they're the first victims of Blackula. And of course, they were played for comic relief, you know, because they were, what is it? Interior decorators and all that sort of thing. So, oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so, right. Well, and I mean, Alyssa, I think you're much younger than the rest of us, so maybe you've had a different experience. But what was your experience with uh, queer characters in fiction growing in horror fiction growing up? Um. So i I actually grew up. Uh, so I grew up in a very uh, right wing conservative environment, and. Uh, <laughs> And it was also like a very evangelical Christian environment, so I wasn't really allowed to read a lot of stuff. Um, when I did read horror fiction, um, I had to steal it from the library. <laughs> um, but uh, I didn't encounter a lot of representation either. Um, I mean, the one, uh, when I was younger, I remember um, the only representation I saw of a queer character in a Christian bookstore was one of those, like, sort of how to talk to your friend about kind of books, except this was <laughs> how to talk to your friend about them being queer, but sort of like a how do you fix them kind of book, and it made me very uncomfortable. So that's a different sort of horror. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Alyssa, say a bit more about stealing books from the library. Like, what, what kind of books were you stealing, and did you ever get caught or anything like that? Uh, so I never got caught, and I don't know if that was because I was a particularly good thief, because I always brought them back, or whether or not the librarians knew what was going on. They were just, they were just like, eh. um, I, I stole them instead of just borrowing them because I knew that if I borrowed them, they'd show up on my record and my parents could find it. So, um, I remember I stole a bunch of Stephen King books. Um, I, uh, I stole Swords Point, which was, I, that blew my mind. I feel like that was the first book I read with queer characters that was very overt and i loved it i knew that if my mom found it i would be dead i would be super dead so um i distinctly remember um before i worked up the courage to steal swords point which was my first book theft um hiding it in various places in the library so no one else could take it so i'd know where it was the next day when i came back for it well, so, um, so Wendy, I mean, uh, one of the things I wanted to mention from, I think it was, I guess it was from the introduction is, uh, in terms of representations of queer characters, you, you say, quote, how many thrillers about psychos rely on the idea of a gender confused sadist to power their stories to success? Just ask Thomas Harris and Robert Block, plus all the writers who've ripped them off over the years. Just want to talk a little bit more about that. Well, you, you know, probably the first serial killer movie I ever saw was Silence of the Lambs, um, which, which actually I read the book first because that's we didn't really have like a very good video store when I was a kid. <laughs> so just this notion that kind of I think especially saturated movies in the 90s, which sort of comes from psycho and i think blossomed in silence of the lambs is that this that serial killers have to have these twisted sexual motivations and that sexual motivation is that they have this confused relationship with their gender and their body and it's just an example of how I am stumbling here. I wish someone could come rescue me. I don't know. <laughs> well, there's an... Is, may I rescue? Please, Craig, please. <laughs> okay. There is the book called The Celluloid Closet by... I don't know how to pronounce his first name, but it's something like Vittorio uh, Russo. And it basically shows how that entire psychopathic homosexual thing was in the movies from the beginning. For instance, All About Eve, which isn't a horror movie, is basically the original version of it was that she was, uh, Eve was going to also be a lesbian, but it didn't pass the blue codes, I guess. So that, the idea of uh, sort of sexuality or sexual psychosis, particularly homosexual psychosis, is really deep-seated. And it's funny that you mentioned Silence of the Lambs, because there is that one line where 
Hannibal says something to the effect of, well, he really isn't transgender. He's something else. He thinks he is. And I think that that was a direct response to the fact that um, basic instinct was really um, pilloried by the queer community when it first came out because it was all about like every single woman, I hate to spoil it, but every single woman in that story is a crazy lesbian. And so you connect lesbianism to being a serial killer. You know, every single one of them is. So So I kind of saw that that sort of weird, what is the word I'm looking for? Tweaking of his psychosis to be directly in response to the basic instinct stuff. Uh, another thing I wanted to bring up is just, I wonder, is there some uh, sort of natural affinity for queer authors to be drawn to horror? Uh, I, I, there's this quote from Clive Barker that really strikes me. He says, uh, within the metaphysical world which I create, it's not possible to throw the monster out and assume that one's house has been purged because the monster is part of the texture of our internal workings. It's the antithesis in a lot of ways of Stephen King's fiction in which the monster is purged and destroyed in the status quo, though it may have been changed, people may be dead, will nevertheless be reestablished in some substantial way. Uh, so, Craig, what do you think about the contrasting of the Stephen King approach with the Clive Barker approach? Well, I think that uh, there is a connection with gays and horror. A lot, In fact, most of the people that I know who are gay all love horror movies and i've been trying to figure out why that was because it just all see it's like you like dance music blah 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 and horror movies every single one if you go on aq okay cupid half the things are like oh i love horror movies and i think it's partially because like clive says is that a lot of the horror you feel like you're the freak in many ways and Particularly in the 80s, there were all these characters in movies, at least, like um, Freddy Krueger, Jason and all that, where they were characters on their own. And in a way, you identified more with the murderers than you did with their victims, number one. Number two, there's this subtext in all of those sort of slasher films where it's rampant heterosexual teenage promiscuity. And so you get to vicariously, you know, get rid of the jocks that usually were the biggest fag bashers. Well, I mean, Craig, you mentioned Nightmare on Elm Street. And I don't know if you guys saw the link I sent you about Nightmare on Elm Street 2, which I guess is famous for having what many people see <laughs> as a gay subtext. I don't know. Are you familiar, familiar <laughs> with that at all? Um, no, I'm not, actually. Oh, well, I just watched the trailer for this documentary that's coming out about it. It's called Scream, Queen. And I guess a lot of people, you know, the, the, the actor in the movie who plays the main character was gay, but he was closeted. And so he accepted the role in this movie. And then it turned out to be a movie that it's not clear to me whether intentionally or not ended up with this apparently extremely obvious gay subtext. And it's this sort of. Uh, <laughs> do you, you want to talk about that, Alyssa? Um, so, uh, a friend of mine recently sent me an article on this, actually, um, but, um, I believe that the screenwriter knew that it was, and wanted to write, uh, a gay movie, um, and there are scenes, like, specific shots where, like, um, the protagonist is dancing, and it focuses in on his butt, bumping in, like, a drawer, and, like, uh, there's a part where he meets his gym teacher when he's running away, in a leather bar, and then, like, <laughs> no, I'm serious. I, it's amazing. It is amazing. And then, um, later on, spoiler alert, uh, the gym teacher is killed by, um, like, he's killed in the showers, uh, naked, getting towel whipped. <laughs> so, um, I mean, there's, there's a lot to work with, and, um, that's just scratching the very obvious surface. But apparently the screenwriter was totally down for this. The director had no idea. Um, and I was like, you're the director. Like, you're the person who's literally calling every shot. How do you not notice? So maybe he didn't notice, but who knows? It's, it's kind of amazing. 
I wanted to mention that if we're talking about queer characters in horror, it seems like there's this inevitable tendency in horror to have bad things happen to the characters, but that at the same time, people are pretty sick of seeing bad things happen to queer couples. And how do you navigate that as a writer? Um, I don't know, Wendy, what do you think about that? Do you, is that a problem uh, having those two things going together? You know, uh, we actually got the same question when a group of us were over on Reddit. And I thought a great response that someone had is, you know, it's uh, what makes it terrible when, like, so frustrating when bad things happen to queer characters is that in regular environments, not necessarily in, in Queers Destroy Horror, but it's usually that the queer couple or the one queer character, that's it. They're the only queers on the screen and they're sort of like the token. And anytime you have a situation where someone is the token, they kind of have to be, they're like the stand in for like every queer person who's watching the movie. It's like, um, Black Widow, right? Like she's the only woman in all of the Marvel movies. So what happens to her has to represent for every woman who's going to watch that movie. And so when you have tokenism and something bad is happening to your character, then it's frustrating. When you have a whole bunch of queer characters and bad things are happening, it's just like, wow, horror sucks. So that's kind of the way that I look at it. Um, you know, if you have a lot of great queer characters in your story, it doesn't really matter if one of them gets their head chopped off and Cthulhu sucks out their blood because, I mean, it's just going to happen to everybody. So <laughs> as long as it's not like Cthulhu going, you're too queer to live. Blah, your blood is mine. Suck, 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 suck. Totally, totally. <laughs> well, I also get it from the other side, which is a lot of horror movies, um, when they have African-American characters, part of it is that there's a trope in which the black guy dies first. And it's it sometimes has hopped over to the queer character dies first or dies spectacularly. Right. Well, one of the articles in Queers Destroy Horror, it was talking about the relationship between Willow and Tara in Buffy the Vampire Slayer and how this was, you know, one of the first big uh, queer relationships on in TV, basically, and how people were really, really upset when I guess like spoiler warning uh, with what happened with that. Um, and it sounds like, you know, a lot of the people involved in the show that it really that really took them by surprise and that maybe that was a moment where kind of a wider community of people became aware that this was an issue. Do you guys agree with that? Do you see that as kind of a turning point for horror where more people became aware that, you know, we've got to change this pattern? I mean, I, I don't know if that particularly was because I, <laughs> I, I don't know. But um, I do think that sites like TV Tropes and um, like dedicated to like showcasing and dissecting those tropes um, has really helped, um, at least among like, a fairly younger crowd, um, to disseminate information about, like, here are tropes that you can play with, here are tropes to avoid, like, make sure you don't do these dumb things. <laughs> <laughs> are there any particular tropes you can think of that deal with queer characters in horror? Um, I mean, there's the, um, they're the ones that we already mentioned, um, and uh, that Craig specifically mentioned, like, the, the black guy dies first, the queer person dies first. And you can add them both together for bonus points. The black queer character dies first. And <laughs> when I see that, it's always so frustrating. That always makes me really mad. <laughs> Another trope is frequently when you do have a black character or a queer character in a horror movie, they're comic relief oh yeah i'm so tired of that particular thing where they're all you know super swishy and you know that sort of thing and i'm kind of tired of that because that just isn't true there are gay guys that can snap people's spines like a potato chip if they want to and that sort of vision of gay people just being all femme or lesbians all being butch is just not correct. I mean, I think very recently um, I was reading this that people had problems with The Walking Dead finally had some queer characters on there. 
So they had no problem with all the zombies eating people and oh, the violence, but somehow the fact that gay people exist, you know, was that was too far. That was a step too far. Right. Well, I mean, a lot of the essays in Queers Destroy Horror talk about this phenomenon of people saying, I don't care about the author's sexuality. I just want a good story. Uh, do you guys want to touch on that point? Uh, Wendy? Sorry, I was too busy just like smashing things because <laughs> I hate that line so much. It just really irritates me. <laughs> like, yeah, we all want a good story. I think that's the most important thing about reading a short story or watching a movie or reading a book. However, good stories can have all kinds of people in it. And guess what? We live in a world with all kinds of people in it. So all kinds of people can appear in your fiction and that will actually make it a better story. Congratulations, asshole. <laughs> well, yeah, inevitably all these people, I think, saying, you know, it doesn't matter whether the char the author is black or whatever, if the character is queer, inevitably they probably just read one type of fiction. I've always found that to be the case, that they don't read widely. Um, that's one of the reasons why I don't like it. And frankly, what they're doing is that they're limiting themselves from finding some really great stuff because it's published by a queer press like Leafy Press or published by a African-American press like Rosarium. Um, they'd look at it and they say, oh, black, oh, not for me. Well, it always strikes me because people say, I don't want politics being injected into, into my fiction. I just want a good story. As if demanding that all fiction published everywhere only have straight characters in it has no political dimension to it whatsoever. <laughs> right? It's such bullshit. I think that's what bothers me the most about it. Um, when people are like, oh, I don't like it doesn't matter to me what the author's identity is. Like they could be black. They could be white. They could be straight. They could be queer. I'm like, but the fact is like by saying. I feel like that claim reinforces the idea of straight and white, and usually male, being the default. I kind of also want to allude to the unpleasantness in science fiction, the <laughs> Hugo's, which is that all of the people saying, you know, it doesn't matter, all of them have a clear political agenda. <laughs> and it's just like their pol their political agenda is not political, you know. They mm -hmm. they're you know just writing about you know booksome babes and and manly men and uh, you know Joe Q you know white guy somehow is not political. But as soon as a gay person appears on screen, oh, it's a political. It's a token, you know. Mm -hmm. And it's like you know. Bitch, yours is, you know, <laughs> yours is uh, political too, you know? When I put a white person in my story, it's, I know that it's political, you know? Mm hmm Same. And another thing is, I mean, maybe you can make a pair of jeans and not include any reference to the person who made them. Maybe you can cook some oatmeal and it doesn't reflect the person who made it but you're talking about fiction it's a you every piece of fiction is no matter how it might not seem that way especially if you're reading a james patterson novel but <laughs> it is an outpouring of the person who created it and the person who created it cannot file their fingerprints off of it but its DNA still comes from the person who created it. And fiction is art. It is an outcropping of unique personal experience. My unique personal experience is that I'm a bisexual woman living in Oregon, you know, and every piece I write, even if it's about like, you know, a teenage boy is still going to be drawing off of that experience and colored by it. And I don't think it's actually possible to create fiction that doesn't have anything political about it because we are all beings living in a political space that impacts our every moment. 
how can we create anything that's not political? Well, my other thing, too, is as writers, occasionally you get that, too. Like, why do you write about this particular thing? It could be more universal. Well, frankly, I think that my Black experience and my gay experience can be universal, too. There's something to be said there. Um, and a lot of fiction, you know, is like that. Um, I look at uh, the work of Caitlin Kiernan, and somehow if she edited out the sort of trans-lesbian autobiographical stuff, it would be a different sort of fiction, piece of fiction. And, and Caitlin Kiernan has a story in this, uh, in Queers Destroy Horror. Yes, she does. Why don't you say, Wendy, who else, who are some of the other authors uh, included in the in this issue? Well, we, we've reprinted stories by Caitlin Kiernan, um, Kelly Eskridge, and uh, Poppy Z. Bright. And then we have original fiction from Alyssa Wong, Sunny Moraine, Matthew Bright, um, Lee Thomas, and uh, Chuck Palahniuk. And were there any, like, who would you say are some of the other big names in queer horror that you would have really loved to get if you could have? Well, I definitely would have loved to have gotten a story from Clive Barker. <laughs> um, and um, there, there are, uh, Richard Bose is a really terrific writer um, whose work I, I would have really have liked to have included. Uh, Sam, uh, Sam J. Miller is yes. he's a, a new writer and um actually it was kind of heartbreaking because he submitted a story that was just close enough to another story that is that I had already accepted for Queers Destroy Horror. Um and I was like, oh man, I I love this story but I can't use it. So we're going to use it in Nightmare in um January 2016 and I think you'll be in for a real treat. Um Actually, there there is an author who ha we reprinted one of his poems for in, in Queers Destroy Horror. His name is Joel Lane, but he has a lot of wonderful short stories that I really I went back and forth between some of his pieces, and then finally we decided to go with his poetry. But he is one of my all time favorite writers of short fiction, and you should look him up if you haven't read anything by him. I mean, Craig, do you have any other like big queer authors that you want to mention? Um, in terms of horror, there was, well, actually, I don't know if this person is queer or not, but they did a really good job, uh, is a book called Dawn Song, and it's absolutely horrifying, and it's set in Boston, and the main character is a gay guy. I think it was reprinted by Shizine. It was originally a, a tour book, but I think Shizine up in Canada got it, um, what is that guy's name? He wrote um, Internight. Michael Rowe. He writes some really good, nasty stuff that I just find absolutely amazing. Uh, Alyssa, do you have any queer horror authors you want to mention? Um, I mean, Sam J. Miller was already mentioned, but uh, he's one of my favorite all-time horror writers. I just adore everything he puts out. Um, and in terms of short fiction, uh, Isabel Yap has a really beautiful uh, ghost story called Have You Heard the One about Ana Maria Marquez? And it's set in a Catholic girls' school in Manila, um, which I think is just fantastic. What do you guys think about Anne Rice? One of the essays in the book mentioned that they thought that her books had had a massive, had caused a massive shift in the way that vampires and homosexuality are portrayed in horror. Well, my particular take on um, Anne Rice is this, is that I think that she, her vampires, her gay vampires are kind of like, uh, it's almost like a yaoi or slash <laughs> fiction, because they don't really read as gay men as much as they're the most beautiful men in the world. And so obviously they would love each other. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that that portrayal, but that's kind of what I sort of view it as. It's sort of like a, 
you know, a romanticized version of an actual queer life. That's really, that's a really interesting point. I had never thought about it like that, but oh my god, they are just yaoi vampires. Oh no! Oh no! <laughs> and, you know, I think it's fine. I, I, I'm not knocking it for it. It's just that they don't really seem to have the same, like when you read Poppy Z. Bright, who also set stuff in New Orleans too, her vampires and stuff are, they're very queer, you know? There's no question about that. <laughs> and she seems to be more into into that uh, subculture than Anne Rice was. I mean, one of the, one of the essays talking about vampires, too, it was saying that during the AIDS years that, uh, like, lots and lots of stories, became, horror stories became metaphors for AIDS. Does anyone have any uh, perspective on that? Well, there's a story actually in... Uh, queers destroy horror that sort of has a an AIDS theme in there, an AIDS metaphor theme, like um, what is it, the Matthew Bright story? Do you want to talk about that, Wendy? Sure. Um, yeah, you know he's got a lot. That that's the first story in uh, Queers Destroy Horror is called um, Golden Hair, Red Lips, and it's by Matthew Bright and. It's not strictly vampires, but it is a character. Well, it's actually Dorian Gray from, obviously, the story by Oscar Wilde. And so Dorian Gray lives forever, which makes him very much like a vampire. And he's gorgeous. And, you know, he's to he's totally a sexual predator in this story. And... um, And it's set in, like, the AIDS crisis. And there's... It does have a feeling to me that is very much like that vampiric feeling, like that total, like, um, Bram Stoker's Dracula, you know, like hot vampires being all sexy, but they're not actually sucking blood or anything. And it's definitely all about AIDS. And there is, uh, I'm also thinking about, um, Octavia Butler, who wasn't queer, apparently. Though, um, she had a novel that had had sort of the AIDS thing thrown in there. Like her vampire novel, um, Fledgling, I think the character is bisexual. The vampire is bisexual. And it, I just love the way that she completely dealt with all these issues of power and privilege using the vampire stuff. People talk about Anne Rice and uh, gay vampires, um, but I mean, Dracula is super queer. Like, <laughs> I mean, it is. It's so queer and it's so sexual. And I remember I read it. Um, I reread it uh, in college for a gothic lit class, and I remember sitting there and sweating and going, "Oh my god, are they allowed to like assign this stuff?" <laughs> <laughs> um. But I mean, uh, I'm, I'm thinking specifically of the first part in the book, um, where, uh, Jonathan is, uh, visiting Count Dracula and he goes wandering and he finds the brides, Dracula's brides, and, uh, Dracula's brides try to attack him. But then Dracula shows up and he's like, no, this one's mine. And he like <laughs> throws them off and like carries Jonathan away. And I was like, whoa, this is super gay. <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> it was awesome. Well, there there was one of the essays in the book, I think it was, it was something about the history of queer horror, and it was talking about how many of the early horror authors were probably queer, but they couldn't uh, express it openly, but how supernatural monsters became metaphors for that. Uh, and there were quite a few, I mean, John Polidori, he wrote the first English language vampire novel called The Vampire, that's one that sticks in my mind, but there were a whole bunch that this person listed. And there's also, um, I want to sort of talk about there's this uh group that i met at world fantasy they're called um what is valen court books and they're basically republishing all these lost gothic gay stuff gay authors so yes. they rediscovered this guy named michael mcdonald and he was gay but he couldn't come out and he died of aids um pretty young actually around 
45 or so. So they're reprinting all of his horror novels, which Stephen King thinks are just absolutely amazing. And they were published originally in those lurid paperbacks, you know, those horror paperbacks that have like dripping blood as a font and things like that and race. Yeah, <laughs> that sort of thing. I actually bought his first book on like ebook and it was on like super sale like just a couple months ago and still have it like all ready for like when I need like some good fun reading. <laughs> well, I, actually, Craig, speaking of small presses, you mentioned that earlier that how much of queer horror is published through small presses. Could you just talk a little bit more about the role that small presses play in getting this stuff out to the audience? Well, I. One of the things that sort of struck me i went to the uh world horror convention um this year and one of the things that struck me about horror fiction in particular because i kind of knew i come from the more fantasy sci-fi side of things one of the things that struck me is that it's so much like indie rock in the 90s there are tons of small niche presses all producing this lovingly produced, you know, niche work. And uh, queer horror in particular, let's see, there's uh, Lethe Press does a lot of queer horror. Um, I would recommend Thomas Cardamom as a wonderful horror writer. His book, uh, Pumpkin Teeth, is just absolutely amazing. Um, I would also talk about Bailing Court, which does... Uh, like I said, they do either old gay books or gothic books or gothic gay. <laughs> That's basically their thing. But they do it really well, and they they do these wonderful book covers for them. They all have a look, you know. Um, I also, when I worked at Lethe, I sort of got them to publish um, this Tanith Lee collection of this is this weird story, Tanith Lee story. Do you mind the digression? No, no, go ahead. Okay. Tanith Lee contacted me one time, and she said that she had these books that she channeled through the spirit of a old Jewish lesbian. And I was like, that's really weird. So I got the book, and I read it, and they're absolutely fabulous. It's like Sarah Walters, you know, the one who did, um, what is it? Finger tipping the velvet, that sort of thing on crack. It's just absolutely <laughs> gothic lesbian craziness. And a lot of it is, I would say it's more gothic than it is horror. But there's some horrific things that happen in there, and there are ghosts and things like that. Um, so, Leafy Press put that one out, um, as well as a bunch of other horror stuff. Well, let me let me just stop stop you there for a second. So, so she was saying that uh, the spirit of this Jewish lesbian had sort of inhabited her body and had written the story. Yes, absolutely. And was she... it? <laughs> She writes longhand, and she said even her handwriting was different. And it, and it was it was fiction, though the spirit was writing fiction, or was the spirit writing something that had happened to it, or something? It's unclear. She said that the character would lie to her frequently. <laughs> the fictions lie. Some of it is clearly fiction, and some of it is autobiographical because certain images keep on coming back through the story. And it gets even better. <laughs> she also was inhabited by the spirit of her gay Jewish brother, whose name was Judas. Sounds crazy. And this was at World uh, Fantasy, or not World Fantasy, Orbital, where I met her. And she's told me the story that she had. And about maybe a year later, she sent me a copy of the story that Judas Garber had written. And it is absolutely one of the most amazing pieces of fiction because it's, it's fantastical, but it's also grounded in reality. And it's very much in that 
that mode. Um, I just can't even explain it. It's just amazing. And and did she write all her other books, or did she have other spirits writing any of those? No, she wrote all of her other books by herself. But and it's an interesting concept. Uh, I did want to ask you, Craig, there was, speaking of the horror small presses, there was another essay in this that was sort of suggesting that the horror small presses, they thought focused, the queer horror small presses focused too much on the fact that the characters were queer and not enough on their queerness just being a background detail. And they thought that that it kind of self-ghettoized the uh, queer horror small presses. I was just curious if you had any take on that. Well, I actually was a judge for some of the, uh, for Lambda Literary one time. And I got tons of books. And a lot of the, there is a sort of thing where they put, like gay presses will put a half-naked man on the cover to sell it. And it isn't always reflected in the actual book itself. It's like the naked lady in science fiction in the 70s doesn't necessarily mean that it's trash. They just threw it on there. But <laughs> there is, I definitely see that that's, a, that's an issue, that a lot of people sort of, they're really handsome young men or really, you know, sexy lesbians. And the fact that they're, they're sexy is almost more important than the story. There is that sort of thing about <laughs> in certain queer presses that they really could do a better job of, you know, foregrounding the fact that it's a horror story with queer characters rather than a gay horror, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, Wendy or, or Alyssa, do you guys ever seek out stuff that's marketed explicitly to a queer audience? Do you th Is that something that you've ever been drawn to? Um, so I definitely do. Um, I think even in my library thief adventures, um, they, I don't think we had, like, LGBTA uh, YA sections yet, but, like, I feel like, uh, like, especially for YA, libraries are starting to do that um and uh there's so many blogs um that highlight books by marginalized uh creators and um i almost feel like i'm making up for uh my childhood of not having any um by trying to read as much and as many as i can i mean can you think about what any of those blogs are um well let's see uh I think the ones that are coming to mind right now are Rich in Color. Um, diversity in YA is a, is a good one. Um, and it's for all kinds of diversity, not just uh, queer diversity. Um, well, so Alyssa, why don't you tell us about your story from Queers Destroy Horror? Um, okay. Uh, so my story, uh, Hungry Daughters of Starving Mothers, um, is about... Finding love in the big city. It's not about finding love in the big city. Um, it's, uh, it's sort of about, um, in a way it was a response to that, um, that idea that you only needed one of any person of any identification in a story. I really wanted to write a, a queer Asian American story and, uh, one that sort of celebrated, um, the vast variety of Asian American experiences, but also was tied together with that feeling, like that shared feeling of isolation, um, in the sense that, like, as someone who is growing up as Asian American, you're an outsider both, um, in America, because you're always seen as that Asian kid. And you're also an outsider in the country that your parents or their parents or their parents came from. Um, and in that sense, what ties you together as like two other Asian Americans is that feeling that you don't really belong anywhere. Um, but in terms of more concretely what my story is about, <laughs> um, 
It's uh it's about uh hunting predators. And uh it's it focuses on uh three or you could even count four um Asian American ladies who uh are all tangled up in this one way or another. Right. We'll talk about the the supernatural aspect in the story. Just how did you come up with that? Um <laughs> you know, I I don't know. I um I was thinking about people's terrible Tinder dates um and terrible <laughs> like online dating experiences because there are there have been a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and um and in terms of supernatural, uh my protagonist uh has this thing where she eats people's bad thoughts and uh one of her romantic partners, especially in the first draft, was just too good and therefore an unsustainable romantic partner because why would you stay together with someone who like if you stay together with them you'll end up dying of starvation well in this character she eats people's bad thoughts and then vomits them back up into jars that she then keeps around yeah so she keeps them in jars um because uh it's always a good idea to store your leftovers especially if you live in a big city <laughs> Actually, the original story title was, uh, do you mind if I share this, Alyssa? <laughs> Go ahead, yeah. It was The Reflux Game. And <laughs> when I saw that, I was like, you know, I often suffer from reflux. And I was like, I'm very intrigued by this. But it didn't really seem like a very good match for the rest of the story, which has like this incredibly lovely prose and is like very thoughtful and deep. And um, so... I asked Alyssa to come up with something brilliant, and of course, she immediately had like this genius other title, which I I really love. Um, but it kind of tells you a lot about the character with that original title. <laughs> no, no, I I love the new title for sure. Um, so, you went, do you have any other interesting editing stories from Queers Destroy Horror you want to mention? Um. Well, I do have to say that originally, the original plan for Queers Destroy Horror would be that it would have four uh, reprints and four originals. And um, I really liked the story called Hot Potting that Chuck Palahniuk had written. And uh, if you ever get a chance, it's a pretty cool story. You should totally check it out. It originally appeared in his, um, like, it's kind of like a fixie novel called Haunted. Um, and so... I knew that JJA, our publisher, John Joseph Adams, that he had approached Chuck Palahniuk about reprints before. And I said, well, maybe you could talk to him and we could reprint Hot Potting because I don't think it's ever appeared in anything else. And it's really gross. And I, I really wanted to have a really gross story in this book. And um, so he talked to Mr. Palahniuk and it, it was like he thought about it and he's like, you know what? Actually, I think I'm going to write something new instead. It was like, wow, can you do that in like a month and a half? <laughs> <laughs> and he did. And um, it was kind of stressful because like I didn't know what was going to show up or what it would be like if it would fit with anything else in the whole book, but it worked out a-okay. So that was probably like the big story for me of putting this together is like, a month and a half of not knowing how my book's going to come together. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing, though. You were able to get an original uh, Chuck Palahniuk story for the book. That's really cool. It's still mind-boggling. Um, and I, I have to say, when I was working on the book, I found my... I wrote his name, like, probably I spelled it differently <laughs> every single time I wrote it, and it was really embarrassing. But I finally worked it out, like, and I think I'll never misspell his name again. So I'm feeling pretty good about that. I went through a similar thing when I was prepping to interview him for this podcast, so <laughs> I, I understand where you're coming from there. See, Craig, do you have any good uh, stories from your involvement with Queers Destroy Horror? Uh, not really, except to say that there were a lot of pieces that didn't make the cut, but were really good, and I really hope that they find homes. So those of you who were rejected <laughs> we loved your stories. They just didn't fit in with the thing. You're, I wait to hear your other stuff. Um, I would also like to, to talk about Chuck 
Palinuk, too. One of the things I think was interesting about him is his whole backstory. That um, the fact that he's he's queer, but he also created this book, you know, Fight Club, which was poking fun at neo-masculinity, too. So he was sort of seen as the torchbearer of uh, talking about ways men act with one another. But the fact that he's queer adds a lovely layer to that entire thing, <laughs> you know, and it sort of turns the entire Fight Club story. It has an interesting, when you add the fact that he's queer, it adds an interesting subtext to it. Right. I, I, heard, I heard you say that you thought people read Fight Club and were like, this is awesome. I want to start my own Fight Club. Right, and exactly. They didn't get exactly. that it was a satire. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> they just didn't get it. And, you know, I, I, I have a friend who is straight and he was like, really? He is? <laughs> like, yes, <laughs> he is. Here's the thing. Here's the, you know, here's the proof. <laughs> That makes me rethink that. Yep. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm glad that he he uh, he consented to being in there. Yeah, yeah. All right. So we're running a little short on time. Does anyone have any final thoughts about Queers Destroy Horror they want to mention? I want to uh, sort of ask everyone basically what the destroy part of it was, just to hear a their sort of thesis behind it because there's first women destroy there's now queers destroy and next there's going to be poc destroy why destroy well you know i saw the whole joke unfold on twitter about like women destroy science fiction which was intended as sort of like a a satire like you know this eye roll oh look women are destroying science fiction because they're writing science fiction and they're getting their girl germs all over it and when they <laughs> write it it's not the real thing at all so look bleh women bleh and so that's kind of you know, that, that's where like it all came from but I like to think of it like when we were putting this together is it's kind of like queers totally destroy. Yeah, rock, you know, like, <laughs> like it's wicked. How wicked is good and like sick is good somehow. <laughs> so that, that's how it is in my head. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes, because I remember there was a big thing. On Twitter, it seems like all the fights are on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> and there's this big fight about, what is it, hag horror? Like some dude. Oh, yeah. Was oh, like, yeah. All women, all the women in horror look like Stevie Nicks, but they're <laughs> ugly. <laughs> and so all these women got together and said, we're all hags of horror. <laughs> so I love the fact that there is a sort of playful poking in the stick. There are probably people who do think that having gay people anywhere in there is, you know, it's disgusting. And so it's like, ha ha, here we are. <laughs> Deal yeah. with it. In order to build something better, we got to blow it up first, right? <laughs> right, right, exactly. I'm looking forward to a POC destroyer horror. Great. Yeah, I'm excited too. Um, I mean, I just wanted to say something about how much like the Destroy series means to me, which is a lot. <laughs> um, and I think, I don't know, I a lot of my friends are really excited for it. Um, and even just to submit stories, like it was, it wasn't even like, oh, we're excited because we might get published in this thing. It was like, we're so excited this exists. And the fact that we can submit stories to this project that is so focused on highlighting queer voices or, you know, women's voices or POC voices, that was such a big deal. And when it was announced, it was sort of like this feeling that we were seeing signs of change, you know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the things, I mean, I'm excited for POC, because there's so many great uh, 
writers of horror of color that are just completely under the radar. And I just, mm -hmm. I want them to be shown. But um, the other thing is uh, how this entire thing is, it is really important for people to know that representation does matter. Mm -hmm. It's so important. All right, great. So uh, we should probably start wrapping this up pretty soon. So Craig, I did want to give you a chance to talk about your upcoming or your, your chapbook that's coming out. You want to tell us about that? Uh, it's called The Nectar of Nightmares. And it's my sort of take on a type of a monster that's sort of vampiric. And it's illustrated by Orion Zingara. And it's beautiful illustrations, just absolutely these lovely Rococo type illustrations. I love his work. And it's published by Dim Shores Press. And they just do uh, limited edition versions of the stories. And this story, just to wrap it all together, I actually dedicated it to the late Tanith Lee who passed away in May. So. All right. Well, that really sounds great. And how about Alyssa? Do you have any upcoming projects you want to mention? Yeah, actually, uh, there's a uh, an anthology edited by uh, James Gates and uh, Monica Valenti um, called uh, Upside Down Tropes, I think. But anyway, it's about tropes, in, inverted tropes, and uh, I have a story in that. Um, it's It'll be published by uh, Apex um, Book Company, so that should be exciting. Um, oh, great. I, yeah, and I have a story coming out, I think, next spring um, on tour.com, so I'm happy about that. So which trope did you invert? Uh, yellow peril in uh, <laughs> noir fiction. <laughs> uh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> oh, well, that, sounds, that sounds good. Wow. Yeah, it's uh it's a it's a very strange story, but it's um sort of like taking the hard boiled detective noir and looking at a typical story from a different like character's perspective. Yeah, no, that sounds really good. Okay, and so then Wendy, uh uh upcoming projects, final words? Um, I see. I've got some short stories coming out. Like, uh, there's a, a short story that just came out this month in a, an anthology called She Walks in Shadows, which is all oh, Lovecraftian yeah. fiction. Mm. Yeah, but all written by women about women characters in Lovecraft's work. Um, and then uh, some other short stories coming out. And then next summer, a novel from Pathfinder. Um, and always working on Nightmare and Lightspeed magazines, which every month come out and is pretty awesome. <laughs> well, and Craig mentions people of color destroy science fiction. Uh, when should people keep an eye out for that? Sure. Um, actually, we'll be doing a Kickstarter for that. That's going to be going on in, I think, the end, like January 15th or February 15th, somewhere around those dates. And uh, if that funds well enough, then we'll also be we'll, – we'll have um, – POC destroy fantasy and POC destroy horror. So you want to make sure to get your get over to that Kickstarter site when it comes out. And did you want to say anything about Queers Destroy Fantasy? Oh, Queers Destroy Fantasy. Yeah, that's going to be released in um in December. And one thing that'll be special if you like Alyssa love Swords Point, as I think there will be a little bit of uh It'll, there will be a little piece of nonfiction about it. And Ellen Kushner is actually hosting our podcast for Queers Destroy Fantasy. So you can actually hear the author, like, you know, talking about these great queer fantasy stories that we'll be featuring on the Lightspeed, on the Fantasy Magazine website. All right. Well, that all sounds great. But unfortunately, we're all out of time. So I think we're going to have to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Wendy Wagner, Craig Gidney, and Alyssa Wong. So, guys, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, thanks David. <laughs> and that was our panel. So, big thanks again to Wendy Wagner, Craig Gidney, and Alyssa Wong for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including David Plock, who writes, Recently discovered and gotten addicted to this show. Interviews with book authors, film directors, and everyone in between. Just listen to episode 121, a panel on haunted houses. Great panel between Lauren Bucus, John Langan, and Grady Hendricks, 
discussing haunted house books and movies, good and bad. Special shout out to Lauren for recommending Session 9, which my wife and I just watched and loved. So, big thanks again to David Plock for that great review. And, of course, a special thank you to David Bevis, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So, if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd prefer to make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. And I'd like to thank Richard Evans, who just became the latest listener to be making monthly contributions to the show. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarrkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening. 